Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. It's only March, and we're already dealing with the biggest news story we're likely to have this year. I'm Tim Scheld, along with Peter Haskell from WCBS. Peter, coronavirus is here, huh? As of this week, we got our first case. We're up to more than a handful of cases, and from what we expect, we're going to see a lot more of them. So this week on WCBS 880 In-Depth, Understanding Coronavirus. Peter, it's clearly the biggest story uh, on our radar uh, in quite a while, and, and everybody, everybody's got a question about it. All you have to do is go to the stores, see the hand sanitizers are sold out, the wipes are sold out, people are putting Purell on their hands everywhere you go. People are thinking about it and worrying about it. So clearly a part of our responsibility is to try and get some answers to some questions. And you had a great sit down uh, with one of the leading uh, experts working on this right here in New York City. Dr. Irwin Redlener is a public health expert. He's a pediatrician by training. He founded the Children's Health Fund, and he's especially advised you to Mayor de Blasio. He has dealt with a lot of these things in the past. And so our first question has to do with where are we now? We already have uh, what's called community transmission, meaning that uh, there's people who are, gonna, who are getting uh, diagnosed by lab confirmation that actually uh, have had no, uh, let's say, contact with somebody else uh, who's been infected. They haven't been to a a country where it's prevalent and so on. Uh, And uh, we have to start really getting very aggressive trying to contain this by tracking the contacts. Who who have these folks been in contact with themselves over the last uh, number of days or weeks? And it's very difficult to do that. But once identified when we're in the containment phase trying to keep everything under control uh, we really do have to track down all these contacts uh, test them to see whether they are positive and then uh, act appropriately with them do you expect we're going to see the number of cases multiplying i expect that we'll see a significant increase in new york and elsewhere Uh, but to be clear People should not think about this as a uniformly fatal disease because it just isn't. It's a very, very small percentage of uh, people who will show symptoms. Maybe it's 20% will show symptoms, but let's say uh, of 100 people who get the virus, some will be asymptomatic, some will get very ill, 
but 97 to 98% of people who get this infection will survive it. So uh, the chances of actually dying from disease, even with all the attention and hype around this, the chances of actually dying, even if you have confirmed uh, coronavirus in your system, uh, those chances of, uh, of uh, not surviving are extremely small and maybe smaller, uh, maybe smaller. Now that we're doing more testing, we're going to find out how big the denominator is of those who actually uh, have the infection. The second patient is a New Rochelle attorney. He belongs to a, a synagogue that has been closed, and it, the folks who were there with him have been quarantined. Is it appropriate to close, and what should they be doing there? Well, uh, closing the facility uh, is one thing, and uh, really uh, investigating whether other contacts at work and so on uh, have this disease, but certainly members of the immediate family, uh, if he's very tied into the congregation in his synagogue, uh, people should be tested, uh, and those where there's any suggestion there might be uh, uh, a problem or the contact was so close that they need to be watched and maybe retested. They should be quarantined, uh, which means they should stay at home. They don't need to be hospitalized. People uh, who have uh, tested positive or might be very close contact uh, should be um, should be quarantined, and usually that means just staying at home. We should say the new patients are the New Rochelle man's wife, his two children, and a neighbor. The children go to school. One goes to SAR in the Bronx, the other to Yeshiva University. Both of those schools are closed. What should be happening there now? Well, the schools, uh, if they're closed, I think they're doing the right thing at the moment, which is an abundance of caution, and they close the school. Uh, because uh, if this uh, one of the kids was sitting in a classroom uh, with the infection and sneezing or coughing, that would put other children at risk of getting this. I, I also should say that the global worldwide experience with this is that not many children have gotten ill or certainly any i'm not aware of any child anywhere including in china that's actually for example succumbed to this disease so uh for whatever reason at the moment and things could drastically change uh children are not as susceptible to getting very sick from this as are adults and especially adults with some sort of uh, compromised medical situation particularly uh, adults that have a previous lung disease they may have emphysema or asthma or they may be on uh, drugs for uh, cancer and so on those people would be considered to be at some level dis uh, debilitated and those people are the ones that we'd want to watch the most carefully should the schools be cleaning and disinfecting yeah, the school should be cleaning and disinfecting. You know, uh, can I tell you with 100% certainty that they, uh, you know, these efforts will really make a difference? I can't, but we do know that the virus can survive on surfaces for at least for a few hours. So, again, in an abundance of caution, as the uh, as the term goes, um, you know, a thorough cleaning with Clorox type of uh, uh, cleaner would be uh, appropriate. And uh, and that's about what I would do. I'd close the schools. I'd make sure people are tested that need to be, and I'd keep the surfaces clean. So how long should the schools be closed for, which is another, of course, question is, and we're not sure about that. Is it a week or two weeks or longer than that? Um, and I, I think probably uh, the best 
answer might be a couple of weeks of the schools being closed, well, let's say at least a week, uh, to make sure all the surfaces are thoroughly cleaned and that people that need to be tested are tested. You know, if, if a child's in the second grade in a particular classroom and not going from classroom to classroom to change subjects, then it's really that classroom that we want to focus on and maybe some of the some of that person's friends and so on that they hang out with in the in the playground and so on. But um, uh, people have brought up questions like, well, should the entire school be closed under those circumstances? And I'm of the opinion that probably not. But on the other hand, I'm talking now, that's as a public health professional. As a parent, I, I must admit that I, I would feel uncomfortable sending my child to a school where the coronavirus has been identified. And I'm saying this even knowing the facts, which include the, the fact that, uh, you know, a regular seasonal flu in the United States kills 35,000 to 50,000 sometimes per year. Uh, it's much more prevalent and probably more dangerous. And we just, we're taking coronavirus a lot more seriously for a whole variety of reasons, which I don't fully understand. But you know, one of the things it is a new virus. We don't know its behavior patterns like we would the seasonal flu. Uh, we don't know how it's going to mutate or uh, become even more virulent than it is. But we do know that at the moment it's less likely to be fatal, let's say, than the SARS uh, epidemic that we had in 2003. So a lot of factors here. But what it boils down to, Peter, is mostly that we're, we're missing a lot of key information in terms of transmissibility, how long are people uh, actually contagious, um, and uh, what is going to be the behavior of this virus as things evolve. So in uh, a situation like this where we have a lot of unknowns, uh, we are being overly cautious, and I think that's generally a good thing. As of this week, according to the New York Times, the coronavirus has sickened nearly 100,000 worldwide, most of those cases in China, other parts of Asia, Iran, and Italy. Uh, Peter, most of the outbreaks can be traced to travel from those spots, but that's not what we're seeing here, right? From what we understand, this New Rochelle attorney did not travel to a coronavirus hotspot. He was not in direct contact with someone who was sick. We're talking about community spread. Just if you could explain exactly what that is. Right, Peter. Well, you, you put it exactly right. So if somebody has a viral infection and we cannot identify if they've been in touch with or close contact with somebody who's got this virus and they have not been to a country where this is problematic or a region, like they, if they just came back from Milan, Italy, or central China, or Iran, or South Korea that would raise our level of concern and suspicion. Those are not uh, what, the, what we refer to as a community transmission. So community transmission is basically defined, just as you put it, uh, no known contact with another individual with the virus and no travel to an area that's uh, problematic. Uh, and we start seeing that community spread, then we can you know, say we have a different kind of problem and we have to go to different strategies. This seems to be the scary part. You've got a guy in New Rochelle, takes the Metro North train to Grand Central, walks to his office on 42nd Street, ostensibly pushes the elevator button, goes upstairs, works with other people, 
it sounds like this this can be troubling for people. Of course it's troubling for people. It's troubling from a public health perspective, but also troubling from a personal perspective. If I worked in that building, I would feel pretty uncomfortable. Well, comfortable about, uh, you know, is it possible I got, I pressed the next, uh, the elevator button right after this, this person did, and uh, as this put me at risk. You know, we're constantly touching our faces, putting our hands in our mouths, doing scratching and whatever we do. And all of these things uh, are uh, ways that the virus could be transmitted, not to mention that if the guy happened to be coughing and sneezing on the elevator ride up, and I was in that elevator cab with him, I actually would be concerned. And I think that concern would be uh, warranted. So, um, yeah, there's big decisions to be made on a paucity of information, and I, I think that's... Uh, that's challenging. It just the, the level of uncertainty itself is almost as worrisome as uh, as the coronavirus per se. So, in other words, um, if I'm in that, if I'm working in that building, not on this person's floor, not in in that business, I don't take the Metro North in. I just literally work in the building where this gentleman works. I I would feel uh, uncomfortable. But I think the thing to do is to really pay attention to the personal hygiene. Uh, habits that public health officials are recommending. In other words, a lot of very frequent hand washing. I was going to say, um, you know, antibacterial hand sanitizer, but uh, that's really not available anymore. It's been all the stores that normally sell it are plumb out. You can't order it on Amazon. You just can't get it right now. There are some formulas on the web that tell you how to make your own. I have no way of knowing whether that's they're effective or not, uh, but that is something. But in the meantime, I think very thorough hand washing. Stop shaking hands with people. Let's use the elbow tap. Um, let's make sure if we sneeze or cough, we're coughing into our uh, elbows, um, and uh, certainly not into our hands. And that we should use disposable tissues to blow our noses and make sure those are thrown away properly and so on. So uh, common sense, personal hygiene is one of the critical strategies in preventing uh, increased spread. You say if you worked in the office building or you tapped the elevator button, you would be concerned. But how much of a risk is it to be the next person to hit the elevator button or touch the armrest on Metro North or the seat back? Are those people at risk if they followed this guy? Well, those people are more at risk than if they had zero contact with this person and you know didn't live anywhere near him and didn't work in that building and had a different way of getting to work. So, yes, there's an increased level of risk. But to keep in mind, though, um, that there are ways of dealing with that. I get off the elevator and I go right to the uh, restroom and wash my hands thoroughly or use Purell if I happen to, happen to have it. Um, and, uh, you know, I just keep an eye out for symptoms that develop and, and go get it evaluated. But again, the fatality rate is really quite low. Uh, I might get nothing, even if I got the, the uh, germ, uh, the virus from touching the elevator button. And, and, and the virus could stay there for uh, a couple hours. If I did, uh, you know, and maybe inadvertently touch my mouth or face or whatever. I could, I could get it. I could, not necessarily, but I could get it. In which case, like I say, the vast majority of people will be fine anyway. So many people ride the subways, the buses, the commuter rail lines. 
do we know how long the virus could live on a, on a subway railing or something like that? We're talking about a few hours, potentially. So what does that mean for people who ride the subways? Well, while you're on the subway and you're sneezing or coughing, uh, you should cough into your uh, elbow. Uh, if you see someone else in your vicinity coughing and sneezing, try to get six feet away from that person. I, I'm, I know this. I, I'm saying this knowing that that's... Like four <laughs> inches away, if that. <laughs> yeah, four inches is probably all you get. But uh, but in theory, you want to stay away from people that have those kind of... Even if we didn't have coronavirus and it's flu season, you want to stay away from people like that. Um, and then as soon as I get off the subway, if I have Purell, I would use it. Uh, if not, I would go to the restroom and thoroughly wash my hands and, uh, you know, use a paper towel to open the door with, and uh, you should be fine. So to be clear, if someone has coronavirus, they grab a subway pole, I grab it after them, I scratch my face, put my fingers in my eyes, I put myself at risk. Yes, but but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you put yourself at risk in a flu season anyway in a subway. And subway riders should always, and, and bus users should always uh, be attentive to personal hygiene. In fact, this goes for a taxi cab. You can get in a cab or, uh, you know, one of the car services and so on, and you could also be in immediate uh, contact with surfaces that have been touched by the previous passenger uh, that may have this or anything else. So I think we all going to have to get generally used to uh, taking the precaution of a lot of hand washing, avoiding handshaking, etc. It's sort of you know it took us a long time to get used to uh, using uh, car seat belts. You know I remember it was, you know decades ago obviously, but. You can't, you can't even find a driver not wearing a seatbelt now. It became part of our, uh, the way we just behave in society. And I think that much increased attention to personal hygiene is where we're going with all of this. Now, in, in terms of uh, being able to c- contract this illness, if a food worker is sick, can, can this be transmitted if somebody touches your food? It's possible, but there are, I mean, I should add that, unpleasant as this may be, there are some researchers who think that the virus could also be transmitted through fecal material. So uh, after using the bathroom, if the food worker is not, you know, very thoroughly washing hands, uh, that's another potential source of contamination. That said, I think most food workers and their employers are pretty attentive to this now, and, and food workers are... You know, in most places, in most cities, most restaurants, uh, food workers are going to be uh, careful and attentive. Uh, but yes, we are a, a bit more risk now, but I think it's important to emphasize that the level of risk is really not all that different than the risk of uh, getting really very sick from seasonal flu. Peter, lots of good, solid information here. The question we heard a lot about this week, how is COVID-19, the coronavirus, like or unlike the flu? And what about a, a specific portion of the population, right? The people who are immunocompromised are more vulnerable than others. And one of the things we've seen a lot and talked about are these masks that people wear on the street. The doctors say, if you're not sick, don't wear a mask. If you have a suppressed immune system, you might want to do it. 
and the mask will keep you from spreading the illness. It likely won't keep you from getting it. From what we know, what are the differences and similarities between this COVID-19 and the flu? Well, the few, uh, first of all, let's talk about the similarities for a second. The symptoms are exactly the same for the vast majority of people get it. By the way, a lot of people get uh, seasonal flu and are not very sick. They're feeling run down. They may have some muscle aches and pains. They may have a little fever, and it goes away. And But uh, there's some people get really, really sick, and there are across the country, since there's millions and millions of cases of uh, seasonal flu annually, there are going to be people uh, in the case of seasonal flu, which could include babies, people with compromises in their immune, their body, the immune systems, their body's ability to fight off infection. Older people and other people with other kinds of chronic diseases are going to be the most susceptible to not surviving if they get a severe case. And that's pretty much what I would say about coronavirus. The question is how frequent is it? How, what is the fatality rate? And like I said, we don't even know that exactly at the moment. We can go by the number of total cases reported worldwide and the number of uh, deaths of those cases. And then we're looking at about 2%, between, let's say between 1% and 3%, which means that between 97 and 99% of people will survive the, the illness. So there's a lot of similarities. The data is not complete enough to give us an actual you know, head-to-head uh, comparison of like how many people are going to die from uh, coronavirus. Uh, and the differences are that we have no test. We, or at least, let's say, we haven't had a test until very recently that was readily available and reliable to establish whether we have uh, coronavirus or not. And we have had that capacity with regular virus. You go to any minute clinic or any hospital or doctor's office, you get a nasal swab, and in a few minutes they'll know whether you, you have evidence or not. Now, some people have to be retested, but the idea is that uh, for coronavirus versus uh, regular seasonal flu, we don't have a specific test. We don't have a specific treatment. Now, viruses do not get treated by, by antibiotics. I, I can't say that enough. You have a common cold. Your respiratory uh, symptoms are bad. Uh, a lot of doctors reflexively will write your prescription for antibiotics. My recommendation is don't take it unless the doctor can say, this is why I think you have a bacterial infection. Uh, but there is one, there's actually a class of antiviral medications that will work on viruses. So this medication that people have heard about called Tamiflu. So if you get the seasonal flu, those viruses that cause seasonal flu uh, could well be susceptible to uh, being treated with, with uh, Tamiflu. Not all will be, but most of the time it'll leave us very much slow or stop the symptoms if you catch it early. There is no equivalent for coronavirus. There is no antiviral medication that is available. And certainly the other big difference is that we have a, we have a, a vaccine to prevent seasonal flu in most people, and we don't even have that with uh, coronavirus. So those are the kind of similarities and differences that we're pretty aware of. We've heard that if you're relatively healthy, coronavirus is not a great risk. If you are not, you are at risk. So give us a sense of what people, which people might be particularly vulnerable and what they should do to make sure they stay healthy. 
So surprisingly, children do not seem to be particularly vulnerable to the virus, or at least getting very sick from it. Who does seem to be most vulnerable? It's mostly men by a small margin, but these are people who uh, are in their 50s and older, especially those with a previous history or long-term history of, uh, of lung disease, uh, but also other chronic diseases and anything that they're, they may have an illness or treatment for an illness that uh, lowers their ability to fight off infections, which mean that we call them immune-compromised individuals. So those are the kinds of individuals that would be most uh, uh, concerning in terms of the severity of disease they might get if they catch coronavirus. What should those folks do? They should be hyper-careful about hand-washing, uh, about personal hygiene that we uh, talked about, that, um, and they should most certainly stay away from people who are sick. But, of course, I would recommend this even before coronavirus. You know, if you have chronic illnesses, you have immune compromise, you have lung disease, uh, it's a bad idea for you in general to be around people who are feeling ill, even if it's just a regular uh, seasonal flu or a cold. You mentioned children have not been getting sick. There has been some suggestion that children are potentially carriers of this of this virus. Is there any sense of that? What's your sense? Well, there could be, and we're waiting for more data to come in about that. All I'm saying is, I just want to be very clear about this, is that so far, children either dying from coronavirus or getting very sick from it have been extremely unusual. Uh, on the other hand, they may well be carriers, and there may well be lots of them. They're just not getting as sick from it as some of these higher-risk uh, adult groups are. I want to switch gears here. You have been involved with some of the city planning. Give us a sense of what's happening at the city level. Well, New York City has a phenomenally strong uh, health and public health system. Uh, no system is perfect, but uh, New York would rank among the top uh, levels of, uh, of capacity and ability to deal with this kind of thing of all the cities probably in, in, in the world, but certainly in the United States. Um, and the level of planning has been extraordinary. And we're talking about top-down and bottom-up. So we have Mayor de Blasio, who is highly focused on this in detail about what the city should be doing. And uh, and all of, it, all of the relevant commissioners are as well. And then very uh, happy to see that in action, but it's genuine. It's it's basically you know orders from the top to get New York City maximally prepared for whatever comes down the pike, and I, I think that's I think it was personally comforting to me to see that, and I think New Yorkers should also be uh, glad to know that the city's doing what it can. That said, uh, there's this. These plants are always porous, whether it's here in New York or anywhere in the world, that you do the best you can. But once you start getting community spread, it's like with the example of the guy uh, from New Rochelle who unfortunately got uh, quite sick. He works someplace, his kids go to school someplace, other family members have tested positive. Tracing, tracking, containing spread uh, in, in this environment is, is almost impossible. It's not like we're, and the other thing is that people are traveling from here. 
It's not like China, which has the, I guess, the ability and willingness to just shut down and isolate and quarantine huge cities or regions. That's not going to happen in in the United States of America. And uh, so we're inevitably going to have people going places or coming from places where there's been exposure to coronavirus. So, um, So first of all, we're trying to contain it and identify potential carriers. Uh, as they're coming into the city, although we're doing that internationally, not really domestically. So they come into the city, and they may have something, and then whoever they're in contact with while they're in the city, whether they're tourists or on here on business, uh, will have the potential of spreading it even more. So the containment realities, keeping everything under control in that way, is we've sort of passed that point where that's even feasible. Um, so now we're looking at mitigation. What are we going to do about it and the cases that we find? And uh, I think we want to be very, very uh, prepared. And I think uh, I'm confident that we're getting as prepared as we possibly can be. And I've been critical of cities in general ability to be to be prepared. And some things we are better prepared for than others. But I don't think I. I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking to find fault. It's it's in what they're planning, and uh, it's really been difficult. I've actually I've actually been impressed. Um, the mayor wants his all of his agencies to be thinking of worst case scenarios, uh, which is also something I find very interesting because typically a planning process in a city will say, yeah, tell me what you would like to do, but here's, here's, the, restri- here's the restrictions and constraints that we have, and, oh, no, that, that's, we can't plan for that. That's too severe. We won't be able to deal with it. Uh, de Blasio is going farther. Just tell me the worst-case scenarios and what we're going to do. I, I think all of that uh, should be encouraging for uh, New York City residents at least. One of the big concerns is schools. Over a million school children, they're obviously in tight quarters. So a couple of things. One is what is happening to prepare? What happens if one student gets sick, if 10 students get sick, if 100 students get sick? At what point do you say we're closing the doors? There are 60,000 classrooms in New York City for the million-plus children in the school system. I think at the lower levels, where it's confined to one school, we're going to close the school. The parents will demand it, even if the, the experts are saying, you know, you just have one, one third grader in one classroom. I mean, why are we closing the entire school? Uh, like I said earlier, if I'm a parent in another classroom in that school, I'm going to be really nervous about sending my my child to that school. And those are all factors that are legitimate. And so that that's a school that may well get closed. And p- certain people tested. Maybe a lot of people tested in the school. If we started seeing multiple cases in multiple schools, we're going to have bigger decisions to make. Maybe we'd have to close all the uh, schools in northern Manhattan or in Staten Island or something. But um, it's very it's very difficult to know what is the threshold that would have to be reached to actually close a school or multiple schools. You know, I, I just as a way of background, I, I don't think we should be taking school closing lightly for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of schools that are in neighborhoods where 
you know, school performance and academic performance is limited. Absenteeism is a disaster for for students who really need to be in the classroom. The absenteeism rates uh, in normal times, the higher they are, the more they're correlated with, with poor success in schools, as you can imagine. So to impose a shutdown of schools from just from that perspective is a uh, uh, is is a problem. But the other problem has to do with the cascading consequences of what happens when you close the schools. Like where are the children going to be? They can't be in groups being watched by somebody because uh, the whole idea is to separate the children. That means they have to be home. The vast majority, I would say, of working parents in New York City have to go to work. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They are under chronic financial stress. If they're in a job that doesn't allow for people just to take off when they're not themselves sick uh, is, is a big uh, problem. So we have an economic problem for families with school closures. And secondly, the people that are working, parents, uh, what happens at their job? What if they're working in retail? What if they're working at a delicatessen or a restaurant or an office someplace? Uh, what happens to the, what are the business and economic consequences of closing a school? So it's not just a matter of how the children are affected. It's a matter of how the family's affected and how the economy is affected. So the ripple effects from closing a school are very significant and very complicated. And we have to be very careful about the criteria for when we're actually going to pull the trigger and, and close a school or multiple schools. We spoke less than a week ago. I'm going to ask you a variation on the question I asked you then. If you had a conference in Manhattan, someplace in uh, Hilton, for example, would you go? If you had a business trip in L.A., would you go? If you had vacation plans in L.A. or vacation plans in Paris, what would you do? I, I can show you the texts and emails I'm getting every day from friends, family, including the guy who called me when we were speaking. Anyway, I, I'm inundated, as all of us are, with exactly those kind of questions from friends and family and colleagues and so on. Um, my answer has been, and still is, if I was scheduled to go to Paris for a romantic weekend with my wife on Saturday, I, at this moment, would go. On Friday, we could get information that would make us cancel the trip. So my answers are always conditional, except if somebody said, hey, I'm, I'm looking to uh, take a family trip to, uh, you know, to Lebanon or to Iran, mm, not going to happen. Or, you know, there's certainly China, nobody would go to now. Would I go to Washington State? Would I go to Seattle for a conference? Uh, I'm not sure. We, we, uh, my center... Uh, has been doing some uh, training programs on preparedness, you know, long before this started. We had a training session scheduled, and two people were going to be managing that in Seattle. One of them is a full-time staff. The other is a consultant. The consultant said, I'm not going. And, of course, we can't. the last thing we want to do is, is suggest or even push somebody to go if they're not personally comfortable, and I could totally understand it. So we're converting that to a teleconference. Uh, and I think a lot of the meetings uh, that people have uh, can actually be done by modern technology and teleconferencing. And we should be doing that, actually, anyway. But 
you know, if if it's the family, if it's a big wedding coming up on the weekend, um, and it's in a high risk place, for instance, uh, you're going to have to think about that. Um, if you're having a, you know, your annual gala of your organization with a thousand people coming on Monday, uh, you have to think about that. I. What do you think? Well, here's what I think. So, like uh, last week, I was asked by somebody who's responsible for a thousand person gala. Uh, several days from that phone call. And at that point, I said, uh, okay, well, you should send out a, a letter or email or contact every single guest and tell them that this is an important gala, important event, but if you've recently been to any of the high-risk countries or locations and list them, if you have respiratory symptoms and a fever, please do not come. If you do come, we're going to expect every guest to do frequent hand washing and so on, and uh, and I think that's uh, that's what we would do. Um, and it, let's say that conference was in Seattle, that's what I was would have said even last week. If it was today, I I would say you have to think about canceling that or creating that, uh, you know, re- rescheduling it or something. Even though, and by the way, a lot of these th- events are. You don't get refunds because you're worried about coronavirus. So people have, you know, essentially paid for a wedding in full within days of the actual event. And it may not be refundable. It probably isn't refundable. And the business of the, the businesses that are dependent upon organizing these events are already suffering because as is air travel, train travel. I mean, all of these things are under stress now because of these concerns but it's a very legitimate question people have to be able to accept the fluidity of this situation yeah i'd go today uh but i could change my mind tomorrow here's what i think about when you say you'd go to paris would you be concerned about being quarantined either there or when you get back france closed the louvre one of the most famous museums in the world the other day if they hadn't, I'd go. Now that I, this is what I'm saying, it's a piece of information that I'd be absorbing and saying, well, uh, that that means something, and I'm now I'm not, you know, all that comfortable, you know, to just to go on a on a nice weekend or a trip or even a, a conference to Paris, I probably wouldn't go. But this is what I'm saying, Peter. Exactly. It's like yesterday with the information we had yesterday. I'd go. The information we have today, uh, I'm not going. And then everybody has their own personal uh, level of risk that they would accept. In fact, I have a colleague who's leaving tomorrow for Paris. So I said to Je- I said to him yesterday, Jeff, are you going to go? Does, does Mindy want to go with you? Does your wife want to go? And he said, I texted her about the new information about the Louvre. And she said, absolutely, we're going. Are you kidding? So many... Many people would not say that, and they'd have a much different kind of reaction. I would myself have a different reaction. But if you're, you know, look, the chances are infinitesimal that you'll get, you know, deadly ill. You could end up in a situation where you are quarantined. But right now, I I would uh, probably take the chance for a lot of different places. I'd be more worried about the airplane trip than than where I'm going. What would you do on the airplane, and what concerns do you have? Well, my concerns on the airplane would be the proximity, the poor circulation of air, 
and I would not be happy sitting next to or nearby somebody who was coughing a lot. You just gave me a lot of reasons not to fly. Yeah, maybe I did. Did I? Okay, let's, I'm going to accept the fact that that could be the case. But again, you know, it's everybody has their own sense of whether, you know, the chances, if, somebody, if you're sitting three rows in front of somebody who's coughing, so the distance, the sort of safe distance is probably, you know, six feet. If you're sitting at six feet uh, and the person's coughing intensely, I would not be comfortable. Um, if I'm nine rows in front of that person, I'd probably be okay. I would be okay. I would go. But what if you're sitting on the airplane and, you know, you know you're getting ready to take off and then this person's, you know, sort of... You know, coughing like crazy. Uh, you don't know that when you get on the plane also. You don't know it. In fact, the other day we were flying back from uh, Denver, my wife and I and granddaughter, and there was, in fact, two rows in front of us on the other side of the aisle, two guys with face masks on, one of whom was coughing, lifting up his mask to you know, blow his nose and stuff. And I'm, I, did, I, went, I went up to the purser on the plane and said, this is happening. Well, you know, I'm I'm not comfortable with this. He says, "Well, there's no policy right now to screen every patient getting on an airplane." Um, so, you know, again, you're taking a chance. I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms, um, and the person probably did not. Those guys probably did not have coronavirus. Just a very small that they did, but we have a heightened sense of alertness. The question is, how does that affect decision making? about travel, going to meetings, going to, you know, a wedding, uh, and so on. Um, and I think this is like a, a work in progress. And I think this is very difficult for the public. It's difficult in the Redliner household to understand what we should be doing and, and what, what are our priorities. But it definitely makes everybody stop and think, do I want to go there? Do I need to go there? Which, of course, the other, the other big uh, challenge is, what should businesses do? When should they close? Like the business where the guy from New Rochelle works, you know, what I would be doing, what we've been recommending to businesses, including my own foundation, is I, I want to see how geared up we are to, for everybody to work remotely. Do we really need to be all here during the day? And, you know, there's more and more, uh, you know, working at distance, working remotely. We have all kinds of technologies now to facilitate, facilitate that. There are many organizations and businesses that have people all over the country working remotely, period, entirely. So this would be a good time for business owners uh, and managers to say, all right, what's our contingency plan in case we have to really ask people to stay out of work how are they going to work remotely do they have the technology is everything set up is the technology backed up do we have technicians available and so on but make those plans now so if it seems like a good idea to close our operations as a congregate setting then we'll be ready so a question that i had I had heard somewhere over the course of the past couple of weeks of coverage that the warm weather perhaps could dampen the spread of coronavirus. Is that any any truth to that? 
Dr. Redliner says that is something that President Trump has raised. He sees no reason to believe that's true. There's no evidence of that at this point. The fact is, we just don't know. It's a lot we don't know, right? I mean, that, that's part of what these experts are saying. Don't expect us to have a whole manual on this yet. Yeah, there are a lot of things we don't know. Not only specifically what leads someone to become ill, but there are a lot of things about coming up with a vaccine, coming up with a treatment, all kinds of medical things, as well as the things you and I would deal with every day. And vaccine, as you uh, say, uh, we heard uh, Dr. Fauci uh, report uh, over the past couple of days uh, that the expectation is that there isn't going to be a vaccine for at least a year or so because of all the testing that's being done on the ones that they're pushing through quickly now, right? Even when they try to expedite this, they expect it to be 12 to 18 months. We asked Dr. Redliner about it, and it seems as if down the road it is possible that a vaccine for this COVID-19 would be incorporated in an annual flu shot. So there's been discussion about how much money has been cut from budgets, whether it's state or federal, uh, within the health departments and what the impact of that uh, has been. One of the questions that I had was how many health detectives are out there? So look at the, the Westchester case. You've got a circle of people a handful of people in a community that have all of a sudden tested positive. That circle widens to the people that went to a funeral or a bat mitzvah and then other people that, that sat at services with them, even to the point that anybody they came in contact, a health detective has to look. You're talking about hundreds of people they got to look at and, and even wider. Could this become overwhelming? This is one of those questions that really is difficult because you only have so many public health professionals and as good as they might be, as you indicate, that circle gets wider and wider very quickly. Disease detectives, and briefly, what do they do, and do we have enough of them if this thing really spreads? Public health in general, and healthcare in general, is a lot about detective work. We get a piece of evidence here, a piece of evidence there, we're trying to come up with a uh, the best treatment for an individual or the disease detectives as we know them are usually epidemiologists they're public health specialists and their job is to say okay here's what we have in chicago or new york where did it start where is it going how are we going to trace the contacts where did it, how are we going to mitigate the consequences and so on it's a real actually it's a very very interesting part of public health and we have do we have enough of them? We have, you know, we have a supply of them. You don't need millions of them. We need, uh, we need to make sure they're available when we need them in the uh, cities or regions where, where they're needed. But most of the academic centers that have uh, public health departments, uh, that have uh, rather public health schools, will have numbers of people that can do that. But there's also the state health department, the local health department, the CDC. So... Overall, in the U.S., we have lots of people who are d d disease detectives. But I'll tell you, Peter, the ones that are most effective are the ones that have read a lot of science fiction, who are able to imagine scenarios that, that most people, even trained, some trained epidemiologists, are not, they just don't think that way. I, can I tell you about an experience I had with disease detection? Please. So in my first job in rural Arkansas... 
we were having, uh, and I was the medical director, and maybe I was 27 years old, and we had uh, recurrent epidemics of diarrhea in these incredibly impoverished uh, communities in what was then the sixth poorest county in the United States. And, uh, you know, I'd go out, we'd make house calls, we'd treat people, we might admit some, some kids for IV therapy to local hospitals, but what happened recurrently? One of the VISTA volunteers, Volunteers of Service to America uh, people, uh, he was a uh, trained sanitation engineer. In essence, though, a disease detective. And one day at a staff meeting, and I wrote about this in my uh, memoir, uh, he says, um, you know, I, I'm concerned that the outhouses, the outdoor privies, are too close to the water supplies, which are, you know, pump handle thing. And we tested the water, and true, true enough, they get these recurrent episodes of uh, E. coli infecting the water supply. So the treatment uh, was we, all of us, all the medical staff, everybody who worked at my clinic, would go out and we'd help these families move their privies to a safe distance from the water supply. That was a disease detective fantastic level. You know, so it was, and I've had many experiences throughout my career like that, including overseas. But these are people who could just, he was not a trained epidemiologist. He was literally got a degree in sanitation engineering, but he thought like a disease detective. And that's what we need. Like, how could this have happened? Where's this going? And so on. You know, for those people, I mean, there was a movie a few years ago called Contagion, which actually was about the spread of something much like coronavirus. And disease detectives have been absolutely critical, like way more important than your best trained infectious disease doctor, for example, because the, the regular doctors are focused on you, which is good, and you're, what you're dealing with, how am I going to treat you? The, the public health doctor is looking much broader. How did this happen? Where is it going? What do we need to know? And so on. Um, we probably have enough of them, but, you know, I can't say we couldn't use more. I just don't know. Last question. You're talking to me. You do a lot of media interviews. Help us. Help us put up a mirror to what we're doing. What is, what is a responsible way to cover this thing, and what is, what is the best way to handle this in sharing the news about this? So there's a couple categories of uh, what I uh, hope to expect from journalists who are basically the watchdogs of everything in society. And uh, if I wasn't a doctor, I'd be you know sitting on the other side of this microphone. Uh, but here's the thing. So there's two general categories. One is, what are we doing right now? Is it sufficient? The second thing is, well, what mistakes have we made, and are we going to change it so uh, we're not going to make the same mistake the next time? The CDC, the Centers for Disease, Disease Control and Prevention, which is a globally esteemed organization with tremendously talented uh, people, the best in the business, have had a very checkered story as far as this coronavirus is concerned. It's taken us far too long to produce and distribute reliable tests for coronavirus, and we're paying a big price for that right now. I, I'm personally shocked to see how how inept these efforts were, number one. And number two, uh, the messaging from leadership uh, at the top, at the president's level, is so disparate compared to what the... Uh, the experts are saying that it undermines confidence 
in the public in terms of what messages they're getting from leadership. So we had a press conference last week, which was extraordinary because you had uh, President Trump and Vice President Pence reassuring that everything is under control. We got this. And five minutes later, serious, experienced experts were saying, you know, it's a matter of when, not if, we're going to see a, a huge increase in this problem. And secondly, because the president was saying, uh, you know, in essence, a vaccine is around the corner. Well, it's not around the corner. It's 12 to 18 months away at best. And I, I think that that is really problematic. And journalists should be pushing and pushing and pushing to say, well, what's the evidence for what you're saying here? What, what did we do wrong? And investigate what happened at the CDC. You know, there's been big cuts at the CDC by this administration. Has that actually functionally hurt them? Uh, I don't know. Uh, journalists should be following the money. Well, this was your budget two years ago. This is what it is now. What has that meant in terms of actual loss of personnel or capacity of the critical agencies here? And this is a very difficult time, and uh, it's a very challenging time for journalists, but the role of journalists in pushing officials for honesty, transparency, and clarity about what they're going to do. You know, everybody makes mistakes and misjudgments. That's not what I'm talking about. But if there were systemic things within CDC that could explain why it took us so long to get a, a reliable, uh, well-distributed uh, uh, test kit out, uh, we should know that. We should know that. South Korea has done something like 65,000 uh, um, tests for coronavirus since this episode began. We've done a tiny fraction of that. It's inexcusable. So that's what I'm, I'm hoping uh, journalists would do. There's one other point about journalism. Is to focus on the denominator. If a elected official says, we're in great shape, we have a million face masks stockpiled. That's a big number, and, you know, without clarification or context, it would be impressive to people. We have five million, whatever it is. The follow-up question should be, yeah, but how many do we ideally need? And if the answer is 50 million, which is m much more likely to be the case, then we're extremely behind. So pushing on that, that level would also be, a, a, I mean, a really essential role for journalism. It's interesting how... Uh, journalism in general has become, you know, it's always obviously very important. You know, in these days of, uh, you know, impeachment and public health crises, uh, you know, journalists and lawyers have come to a whole other level of appreciation, I think, by society. So I would just say keep it up. Erwin, thank you. You're welcome. Peter, even in the time that it's taken for us to record this podcast, we've already heard about new positive cases uh, in our particular area. Again, connected to that one case, but it just tells you that this is not going away anytime soon. And what it tells you is with each person in that widening circle that they encounter, be it a synagogue, a school, a supermarket, an office building, we just don't know. And with each positive case, you have to wonder how many other positive cases will follow. So I don't, I'm going to ask you how you handle it. I can tell you how I'm handling it. I'm washing my hands a lot more. Uh, I'm using disinfectant. I'm being mindful when I'm on mass transportation, whether, whether I want to touch the pole or use the pole. I don't think I'm really being 
wacky. I'm getting on a plane in a few hours, and I'm, I wouldn't say I'm concerned about it, but, but I will be mindful of others uh, uh, you know, on that flight and whether they're sick or not. And I think that that's a good thing. I think that we've all got this top of mind, and we are all self-policing to a certain degree, aren't we? It's self-protection. We try to make sure we're being safe. Uh, oftentimes now I will try to use my knuckle to press an elevator button I work out of my car a lot. I've got sanitizer there, which I've always had, but I'm using it more now. And it's just these little things that we remind ourselves and the professionals remind us. Wash your hands, sanitize your hands, think about what you're doing to keep yourself safe. And for all the answers that you need, the CDC.gov is the website that we've been told to send people to, and, and I think that's a good idea. So, Peter Haskell from WCBS, thank you very much. Uh, I'm Tim Scheld. This has been uh, WCBS 880 In-Depth. This is a topic we no doubt will uh, we'll be digging deeper on in the, in the coming weeks and months for sure. We thank you for listening today. We encourage you to, uh, to pass this information on. It's a good listen. Uh, listen and learn, if you will. Uh, And if you want to listen to us every week, please subscribe and wash your hands. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.